while y'all take y'all seats, I uh, just want to say good morning. It's good to be here. I was here last summer as well, so this is my second time worshiping here. Particularly thankful for this morning. We've been potty training my son all weekend, so it's, uh, it's just good to get out of the house, get a little break, and uh, hopefully he's learned once I get back, you know. Maybe. The Lord does do great things, even in our absence. So this morning, I want us uh, to talk about the resurrection. It's what Christians for centuries and centuries have been talking about. It is the source of our hope, is the source of our gospel, gospel news that we proclaim to the world. And as I was studying the book of Acts this past week, I was struck um, just with the early church's boldness in proclaiming the resurrection. Uh, You see, the early church grew up and really was birthed in a world uh, in the Roman culture that that was really consumed by fear. Uh, is this mic on? Do we need it? Are we good? Okay. Should I turn it? I think it's on. There we go. Awesome. Um, okay. So the early church was birthed in a world that was consumed by fear. The Roman culture was really held up by the rumor that any law that Caesar employed, any action that he wanted to do was going to strike fear in the people and they could be overwhelmed with anxiety and and the fear of death and destruction because they were subject to the whims of a really fickle and fragile person, the Caesar. And as you read in the book of Acts, the church started to have this counter witness in the world and it was a witness not only of a proclamation the proclamation of the resurrection that jesus has risen from the dead but the thing that made the church dangerous and effective and useful in the roman world was not just this news they were proclaiming it was that the resurrection actually helped them embody and experience a wholly different posture towards the world instead of being people consumed by fear fearing that if the country went one way, that they would be subject to all the the bad things that would be happening. The resurrection gave them this experience of hope in the midst of a world that was stricken by fear. And I really think that's the key to the early church's witness, that they not only proclaimed the resurrection, but they experienced it in a way that the world, that they related to the world entirely different. So this morning, I want to talk about the resurrection But I don't just want to talk about information about the resurrection. I want to talk about how we experience the resurrection and how it might change how we relate to ourselves, the world, and even to our God. So I'm going to read from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. This is Mary Magdalene's encounter with Jesus at the tomb. So I'm going to read it for us as you'll turn there. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of our tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in... He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. 
Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood, weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus has laid, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing it to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am sending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let me pray for us as we dive into the scriptures. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, you are a kind God who not only wants us to know about you, but wants us to know you. Who not only has good news to proclaim to the world, but has good news that we can experience for ourselves personally. So we ask that by your spirit, we would not only learn from your word, but that we would learn of you and know you and experience you in a greater and deeper way, in a way that gives us hope, even in the midst of our grief. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'll have three points today, just three brief points uh, about what it looks like to experience the resurrection. The first point that we see in this text is that the resurrection is an answer to our grief. The resurrection is an answer to our grief. If you were to look at this story from Mary's perspective, there is one thing that is unavoidable when you see the text. is that Mary is overwhelmed with grief. She approaches the tomb early on that day with grief. Other gospel accounts actually say that Mary was carrying burial spices with her to the tomb, which means that she was going to the tomb not to worship or not to see it empty or thinking it was empty. She was going to the tomb to carry up the stench of Jesus' dead body with grief. Her sadness grows when she gets to the tomb and she finds that it's empty Not thinking about resurrection, all she can think about is they have taken Jesus' body. So she sprints back to Peter and John to tell them. And finally, the grief continues, even when the disciples leave, as Mary, so overwhelmed with sadness and grief and hurt and dismay, that she's immobilized. She stays by the tomb and she weeps alone. The presence of so much grief in this passage, so much that John doesn't want us to miss it, makes us ask the question, where is grief present in our own life? And what are we doing with it? I had a seminary professor that used to start every single class like this. She would walk in, stand up at the lectern, look out at the class and say, I've got issues, you've got issues, we've all got issues, let's pray. She was really honest about the reality 
That in this fallen world, that one thing that isn't in short supply in all of our lives is grief. Look, we're a denomination. We are a, uh, a church that believes in this thing called total depravity. Which that the world is subject to the repercussions of sin. And what that doesn't mean is that everything and everyone is as bad as they could be. But what it does mean is that there is not one thing in this world that is untouched by the effects of sin. Which means there is not one thing that isn't worth grieving just a little bit because it's not how it's supposed to be. Broken finances, broken families, broken self-image, broken relationships, broken communities, broken hearts. The fall is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Which means so is grief. And the thing about... um, this world we live in currently that I'm kind of overwhelmed with in this social media age and this cable news age is that even if things, I actually think this is helpful, that even if things in our lives are going really well, and if we couldn't point out one thing that's worth grieving in our lives at the current moment, that social media or the news makes it ever more aware that there are at least things in other people's lives, in our communities, in our worlds that are worth grieving. That there are things in this world, there are people suffering in this world, that this world is not as it's supposed to be, even if right now it feels like it. But most of the time I know from personal experience, and I can make a good educated guess, that things are not okay in your life as well. What I love about this story is that John paints this beautiful, this wonderful picture of the resurrection right on top of the canvas of Mary's grief. Which, mean, which is to say that John wants us to see that the resurrection isn't just good news that Jesus rose from the dead, full stop. It's good news that Jesus rose from the dead and that is an, an, a direct answer to our grief. That God has something to say about our sadness. That he doesn't just tell us to be tough. That he doesn't just tell us to get over it. That he actually meets us in our sadness and he cares so much to do something about it. I love how Jesus and the angels respond to Mary's grief in this passage. You see, they don't shame her. They don't say stop crying. They simply ask her in a very pastoral way, what's going on? Why are you crying? That's how Jesus approaches you and me. Isaiah calls Jesus a man of sorrows, one stricken with grief, one not too high and mighty to associate with your bad mood, with your bad situation, but one who in every way lowered himself, humbled himself to care and console you in your grief. What this means is that Jesus is a place where you can take your sadness. I grew up as a coach's son. Uh, coaches were never a place where you could take your sadness. They would just tell you to be tough. Jesus is not a coach. He's a man of sorrows, stricken with grief. He's a gentle savior. He knows you have issues, and he cares. But even more than just caring, Jesus comes to do something about it. Jesus comes to actually give us a reason not just to be subject to our grief, but actually a reason to hope. And this is my second point as we look at this passage. That the resurrection is the reason for our hope. That if we're to have any hope in the midst of our grief, that the resurrection is the very source of it. There's two reasons in this passage that Jesus gives us a reason to hope in the midst of grief. The first one is this, that the resurrection gives us a reason to hope in God's mercy. 
So if you look at verse 12, you see Mary does something pretty peculiar. She's left alone at the tomb, and she's all alone now. She's still grieving. She's already looked in the tomb, if you would note the scripture, and yet she looks back into the tomb. I don't know whether it's in desperation or if she's still holding out hope, but the Lord answers her desperate cry, her desperate plea to see something different than just an empty tomb. In the tomb, she sees two angels sitting there, one at where the head of Jesus was and one at where the foot was. Now, in order to understand this, John is a big, big alluder to the Old Testament. And so we need to backtrack a little bit to see what Mary actually was seeing in this passage. In Exodus 25, Moses, God's prophet, is, giving, is being given instructions by, from God about how to construct the place of worship for God. How to build the tabernacle so that God could dwell with his sinful people. And when he's giving Moses' instructions, God tells him at the very center of the tabernacle, God is going to dwell with his people in this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, this big wooden box where God's presence would dwell despite their sinfulness. On the top of this box was supposed to go a gold-covered plate. And at the gold-covered plate on both ends of it was to be two angelic figures. This plate that covered God's presence was what's famously known as the place of atonement or the mercy seat. It was at this mercy seat where the priest, the high priest, would come in and sprinkle the blood of animals, signifying that the atonement of their sins was covered through a sacrifice, and that they, the people of God, even despite their sin, could access God's presence freely and fully because God had made a way. Look, the book of Hebrews points out that everything that we see in the Old Testament was a shadow of what God was doing through Jesus Christ. And when Mary looked in that tomb and saw that angel sitting at the head of where Jesus laid and at the foot of where Jesus laid, what she saw was what Moses constructed earlier. What she saw was the true mercy seat where Christ had laid as the atoning sacrifice as the way that we could access God's presence even in our sin. Now the question is, what does this have to do with our hope in the midst of our grief? I've been watching this show uh, called Ted Lasso, and it's irrelevant what it's about, but he says this. He says, there's something worse out there than being sad. It's being sad and being alone. The hope of mercy is a hope for us in the midst of our grief because our greatest fear is not that we would be sad, it's that we would be sad and we would be alone because we know who we are. We know we don't merit God's comfort. We know we don't merit his attention. And even if we have things to grieve, the most grievous part of our relationship with God is ourselves. And our fear is that God would say, it's just not worth meeting you in your sadness and grief. What the mercy seat tells us is that God cares enough to make a way to be with you in your sadness, to be with you in your grief. That Jesus spilling his own blood on the mercy seat means our comfort is not contingent on us getting our act together, but on him acting on our behalf. In Christ, we might be sad, but we're never alone and sad. Which brings me to my second 
thing that we have a reason to hope in on account of the resurrection. It's, the resurrection gives us a reason to hope in reconciliation. When I was at Arkansas State, one thing that I ran into with students uh, that was a misunderstanding of the gospel, not entirely, was that a lot of my students, if I told them to explain what Jesus accomplished for them, would simply say, Jesus forgives my sins through the cross. That's all they would say. And that's great. I think that's a good start for understanding what the gospel is and what the gospel accomplishes. But the thing about it is that that's not the whole good news. Imagine doing some premarital counseling with a young couple or with your children. And you ask the the fiancé, the man, what do you like most about your relationship with her? And what if he looks at you and says, well, the thing I love the most about our relationship is that we're just really good at keeping the peace. We're really good at fighting. We don't hold grudges. We're good at forgiving each other. On the surface, that sounds like a really Christian answer, but if you looked over to the girl in the premarital counseling session, what you would see is her shaking her head. That's the thing you like most about our relationship. It's not the way we love each other. It's not the way we push each other. It's not how much fun we have together. It's that we are good at fighting. Look, what Jesus accomplished on the cross is not just ceasing conflict between us and God. It is that, but it's more than that. It's that he reconciles us to himself. It's that he not only doesn't fight with us anymore through his blood, he loves us. And that's what our soul really longs for. It's not to be forgiven by Jesus only. It's to be embraced by Jesus, to be reconciled. We see this in this passage in a pretty profound way. Mary turns around from the angels, turns around from what she saw in the tomb, and turns around and she can't see Jesus immediately, but she turns around and sees a man. She's crying, so her eyes are a little foggy. And then Jesus does something pretty profound to tell Mary that it's him. One commentator said that it was the shortest sermon ever preached and the most beautiful sermon ever preached. Jesus turns around, looks at Mary, and he, all he says that breaks the scales off of her eyes, that gives her hope instead of grief, is he says her name. He says Mary. And immediately, she's undone. Immediately, she's no longer crying, but she's rejoicing. What was so moving about this to Mary? Uh, I'm, I'm a millennial, so I like to watch Netflix sometimes. Um, and the, the, the hit show on Netflix for years has been this thing called Stranger Things. I haven't watched the most recent seasons, but Stranger Things is kind of this throwback show to the 80s that's really about like some middle school friends. And it shows the power of friendship, the beauty of love that's shared between friends. And the friends in season one start out... Uh, really, the plot thickens when these, this group of four guys that are all friends find this girl that's kind of been lost in the woods. And they don't know what her deal is. They don't know how to even talk to her because she can't utter any words. And they're trying to figure out how to help her, how to love her. And the only way that she can identify herself is by a number. She says her name is Eleven. Well, the story goes on. Spoiler alerts. Um, story goes on and they continue to take her in they try to get out what she's been going through and what they find out is that 11 has not been living a normal childhood she's actually been a test subject not loved or embraced or cared for but experimented on and used 
for other people's memes. After they learn this, the lead friend, Mike, does something pretty profound. He says, you know what? I'm getting sick of calling you Eleven. So I'm actually going to give you a name. He turns around and he says, from now on, we're going to call you L." And you can see her disposition completely change. Because no longer is she someone to be tolerated, to be put up with, to be tested. She's someone to be known, to be loved, to be embraced. This is a small picture of what Jesus did to Mary, just by uttering her name here. He's saying, look, you're not just forgiven, you're not just tolerated. But because I've defeated the power of sin and death, because I'm reconciling all things to myself, because I care for you and love you and I'm making all things new for you, I want to remind you of your name. Very practically, what this means is that everything that Jesus is accomplishing through his life, death, resurrection, all the beautiful things that he's making into being, all his redemption work in our communities, in our families, in this world, in creation, all of them he does not very generally. He does them very personally. He does them with your name in mind. When we experience Jesus, we don't just experience this broad general salvation. That is not a gospel that can change us. We experience a Jesus that has our name written in the book of life. He calls out to us, Mary. He calls out to you by your personal name to remind you that all the things he's doing, he's not doing without you. Lastly, we'll go to verse 17 and 18 as we finish this story in a very brief point. That the resurrection is the fuel for our mission. Jesus um, tells Mary in verse 17 and 18 not to cling to him any longer. Note, he allows Mary to cling to him for a bit, to be comforted, to embrace in that reconciling way, which is awesome that Jesus allows such intimacy with us. But he says, look, don't hang on to me any longer because my work is not over. And not only is my work not over, my work includes you. And this is really... As church people, people showing up on Sunday morning, a question that we have to ask ourselves. What is the motivation for our mission? What gets us up in the morning to actually proclaim the gospel, to rejoice in Jesus, to care for our neighbors, to love the poor, to take in the widow, to adopt the lonely? What is it that fuels our mission as a church? And I think the answer is quite simple. What fuels the mission of the church is looking at this story in order. It's, that, it's not that us going and doing things for Jesus, us going and participating in his work, gets us some hope, then gets us some comfort. It's that Jesus meets us in our grief. He gives us hope of forgiveness. He gives us hope of reconciliation. And then, and only then, he sends us out. Faithful, fruitful mission is only accomplished as a reaction to knowing the Jesus that has known you first. To experience the comfort that Mary experienced. To experience the love and embrace that Jesus experienced. Jesus is not someone demanding you to get your act together, to go do great things for him, and then to come back and then get all the benefits. The scandal of the gospel is that he loves us and then sends us. 
I'll end with this. I'm not a tennis person. I never really play. But for some reason over the past year, I have encountered two stories that relate to tennis. And I think they're a, a really cool contrast. Um, I read a book from Andre Agassi. Andre Agassi at one point was number one, the number one tennis player in the world. And I also watched a movie, King Richard. Uh, it's about Venus and Serena Williams' father, Richard. And if you compare the Andre Agassi and if you compare the Williams sisters' career, they're, star- they're, they're very similar from accomplishments. They did a lot of amazing things. They all became number one in the world, and they all won a bunch of major championships. But if you look at their personal lives, if you look at actually how they took themselves into tennis and why they did what they did, you'll see something very, very different. Andre Agassi ended up burning out of the tennis career. He ended up living a rebellious life because he actually admits in his book that he hated the sport the entire time he was playing. Agassi grew up in a home with a father who was demanding. He grew up in a father that didn't care about loving him, didn't care about caring for him. He grew up from the very first thing he could hear his father say was, it's gonna, you're going to be number one in the world in tennis. When Andre Agassi finally reached number one in the world, he went home. And he told his dad, look, we did it. And his dad looked at him without smiling and said, you did what you were supposed to do. Now keep it up. It's no mistake or no uh, guess why he ended up burning out. The Williams sisters, on the other hand, had a dad that loved them before they ever knew him. That cared for them. There's a scene in the movie where they're driving to tennis practice. And no doubt he pushed them. No doubt you're not going to agree with every way Richard uh, fathered his, his daughters. Because none of us are the perfect father. But there's a scene in the movie where Richard is taking his daughters to tennis practice. And he's asking them all these questions. He's catechizing them. Uh, and he's saying, Serena, Venus, you know who loves you? And they say, yes, daddy loves us. Do you know that? Yes. Daddy loves us, and they keep saying it. Before they ever swing a racket, they keep saying it. They had an entirely different experience with the sport of tennis. Because when they went out there, they weren't going out there to prove their father that they were worth his love. They were going out there to enjoy their father, to participate in what he loved to do and what they loved to do together. The simple message is this. That before you ever go do things for Jesus, before you ever live on mission for Jesus, you first have to know the Jesus that lived for you. The Jesus that cares enough to sit with you in your sadness. The Jesus that cares enough to take the cross for you so that you could have access to his comfort. The Jesus that meets you with your very name and says, Mary, and gives us a way to embrace him, to hold him, even in the midst of our pain. And this is what gives us hope. This is what gives us fuel. And this is what gives us peace. And this is the invitation that this text brings us to today. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your glorious grace. Uh, As John says in his epistle, we love because you first loved us. Father, we don't understand that our natural disposition and sin is to simply try to earn, earn, earn your attention, your love, your affection, your comfort. And yet in Jesus, you offer it freely. You tell us to rest. You call all the weary to you and say, I'm here. Come and enjoy. Help us be a people that by your Spirit enjoy you. 
and enjoy doing the work with you that you call us to. And equip us by your spirit to be Jesus to the other people out there that are hurting and grieving. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh no.